of small town music. This is big town music. He's ahead of his time, you know, but he can't use it. If only he could prove it. Well, tomorrow's just a song away, a song away, a song away. Hey, everybody, welcome to Rock Solid, the comedy podcast for all things music, both new and classic. I'm Pat Francis, and today I'm excited to present to you an episode featuring hosts David Wilde and Taylor Locke. Now, David is, of course, a friend of the show, as well as a writer and a producer of the upcoming television special, Let's Go Crazy, the Grammy Salute to Prince, which airs this Tuesday, April 21st, from 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. on CBS. His co-host for this episode is producer-songwriter Taylor Locke, who is the former lead guitarist for Rooney. He also co-created and was the co-author of Don't Stop the Musical, which is a comedy about Fleetwood Mac that played here at Largo Theater in Los Angeles. Now, their guests for today are Susanna Hoffs, Jimmy Jam, Brad Paisley, and Phil Rosenthal. Susanna Hoffs is a beloved member of the Bangles, as well as a solo artist, And on Tuesday's special, she's going to be singing a stripped-down version of Manic Monday with Chris Martin of Coldplay. Jimmy Jam, he's a fame producer with Terry Lewis and a former member of The Time. He's also musical director on The Salute, and he also performs with The Time on the show. Brad Paisley, country music superstar, guitar hero, and Prince fan. Simple as that. Phil Rosenthal is the creator of Everybody Loves Raymond, as well as the star of Somebody Feed Phil on Netflix. So if you haven't guessed by now, these people are going to be discussing all things Prince. And with that, it's my pleasure to introduce Let's Get Crazy with Prince. So take it away, David Wilde and Taylor Locke. Jimmy, I'll start with you. Uh, since you literally go back to school days with Prince, how does it feel when you think back about that talented kid you met and you were another talented kid that here we are, however many years later, probably better not to do the math. Like, why is this guy worth saluting? This guy who, you know, you sh- you know, you saw his rise, you were part of his rise. Then he, fired you and set off your rise. Uh, why, why is he an artist, the artist, worth saluting uh, as we're doing on the Grammy special uh, Tuesday night on CBS for the promotional uh, value of that? Yeah, you would definitely need a calculator to, uh, to do the figures on how long ago uh, junior high school was that we were together in. But uh, the thing I would just say is And I watched a special last night, and the thing that struck me was when you look at the audience that's there, um, and it's all races and all ages, and and people that wouldn't maybe necessarily have a lot in common with each other, but they all do on that night, on that show. And that to me is the gift that Prince gave us all is he made music that really truly united us and empowered us. And um, so I don't know. I mean, going back to that level, I'll I'll tell you, I thought he was the most talented person that I'd ever met or ever seen 
when I met him and I was 13, 12, 13 years old, probably. And I remember that I thought I was a, I played keyboards, but not, I was a pretty good keyboard player and he could play rings around me. And, um, and I also remember we got in a band, a little band together, school band together. And I said, I'll play drums. And he looked at me like drums. I thought you played keyboards. And then he said, I'll play guitar. And I was like, guitar. And he ripped off the solo to make me smile. Chicago, the Terry Cass solo. Just like so killed it. Then he jumped on the drums and like, I didn't even want to play the drums after he got off the drums. So I knew the talent level that he had um, at an early age. And he was a, actually a really good basketball player too, believe it or not. And to that point, oh, I want to get into the basketball, but to the point, uh, hey, Brad, how are you doing? I'm good. It's nice to see all of you guys today. Hi, Brad. Everyone know Brad? Susanna, have you ever met Brad? Um, I don't know that we have. No, we've never met. I would remember. <laughs> uh, and Jimmy, I remember introducing you to Brad years ago, I think, but maybe you've known each other longer. But what Jimmy was saying was that he was, what makes Prince worth saluting is the way he brings all sorts of people together. And one thing is, like, when I asked Brad, who is the, the most shit-hot guitar player I know from the country world, or, or really most anywhere, yeah. he's like, him, he, he's my top five with Eddie Van Halen and Prince, but you immediately said Prince was a, a hero to you, too. Yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, the, that's the thing. It's like, you know, it's an overused expression to say somebody's an underrated guitarist or an underrated anything um because it, underrated is is tricky because I, it's underrated makes it seem like nobody knew they knew he was amazing it's just he was so amazing at everything else just like like jimmy was saying it's like we have a guy that like he was so tasteful is what it was it's kind of like he he reminded me in many ways of david gilmore because it's like he could play these notes it's like there's this incredible other record going on. And then ah, guitar comes in and it's screaming and it's crying and it's it's got Hendrix kind of influence to it. But without like, you know, Hendrix played all over his records. Prince, it's like, here comes the guitar. When it was time for the guitar, it was perfect. And that becomes underrated in the sense that, you know, he wasn't showing off. He was just he was just being masterful every time he played a note, you know? Hey, David, can I, can I, can I just add to that? Please. Part of the reason that I, I, I think he's probably underrated somewhat as a guitar uh, player is because to me, what always stuck out about Prince was his rhythm guitar playing. And that's yeah. not the flashy solo stuff. Right. But that's like, if you listen to a song like Controversy is a great example where it's basically just a four on the floor kick drum boom 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 bum, bum, boom that's not necessarily funky as yeah. soon as prince starts playing ting it's like oh my god like all of a sudden it turns into the funkiest groove in the world and that was the thing that prince had freddie stone had that from sliding the family stone and that was one of prince's you know gurus you know absolutely yeah, but yeah. as a rhythm player that to me was the thing but then the thing that was surprising about Prince, I think that's why people were so blown away at the Hall of Fame induction, uh, While My Guitar Gently Weeps, because they hadn't really heard him play like that in that type of thing. And it was like, it was mind blowing. But like Brad said, it, he never necessarily showed off with it. It wasn't like it's all over my records. It was just one piece of what he, what he did. I will say that Hall of Fame is the one time where I feel like 
he did want to show it's like he yes, wanted he to, yeah, because he wanted to like, burn the house down yes, he was yeah. like he's oh, like no. okay move out of the way i'm gonna show you guys what i got and then he like then that was it it was like yeah right mic drop question yeah. was awesome. question where did the guitar go Somebody right. shot it. <laughs> Someone was waiting up there for it? <laughs> no clue where that's at. That's the magic of Prince. <laughs> I experienced that, um, I don't know, um, when he used to show up at Bangles gigs and, and the way we discovered each other was that the week that I heard When Doves Cry, somebody let me know that Prince had just heard the Bangles first single, Hero Takes a Fall, and then suddenly he would just be at the shows. and. The first time he walked out on stage and just, first of all, the guitar just felt like it was part of him, like just an extension of his body. You know, he was so, it was so a part of him. And then he would start soloing on that song. Mm -hmm. And like Jimmy said, it was like so rhythmic, but it was like channeled from somewhere inside and coming out and in this way that was, I don't know, it was all improvisational, but it was so rhythmic and so supernatural almost to me. I had never seen or heard anybody play where the the guitar was a part of their body and their soul, you know, it was like, and it was just so in the moment and so, I don't know, so deep, coming from yeah. a place, you know, and also so free, so much, just the poetry of like, just not knowing what the next note or rhythm would be, but it was just this, it was a magical thing to witness. I, and I never in my life experienced that again. I've never I, I, been on a stage with a, a musician and experienced that. I ever. was watching him on stage with you and the Bangles on YouTube and it's crazy great. Was that like, basically he started showing up and then after a while, did he slip you in an envelope with Manic Monday or, or what was, um, how did that happen? Well, that, so that was from the, uh, um, Hero Takes a Fall was from our first album. And then when David and Peggy Leonard, who had worked with Prince as engineers, were at that we were recording at the same time, Prince at Sunset Sound and, and the Bangles at Sunset Sound Factory, the sister studio. We were working with David Leonard and Prince was being engineered with by Peggy Leonard. So word got to through David that Prince had a song. And would I drive over to Sunset Sound and get it? But when I when I showed up, I was it, it was like this incredible thing of just driving over there and thinking, you know, we're gonna chat and everything. But the, the cassette, I still have the same cassette that wow. you know that I picked up was there at the front desk because he was in the middle of recording. But that said, that's how it came about. I think it started with Hero Takes a Fall and him liking the band and then playing with us on stage and then having this thought to give us Manic Monday. Has that yeah. demo ever been released? Uh, Prince, Prince, yeah. The Prince demo came out uh, on the Originals collection that just came out, not, I think, last year, yeah. The cassette the needs, same. That, Go ahead. that needs to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, cassette. it's unbelievable. <laughs> well, I, have it. I went to a storage unit to get it because I thought, I know I have the actual cassette, but I had moved and I had stuck some things in storage, and sure enough, there it was. Wow. And um, yeah. And Phil, you were there at the, Phil was, I gave my one or my two free tickets to Phil and his wife, Monica, who, uh, you know, who everyone loves since everybody loves Raymond and everyone knows Phil from Netflix. But they, so you were there. Uh, one of the great 
one of the greatest moments in the show for me, and I think for a lot of people, once they see it Tuesday on CBS, is you did Matic Monday with Chris Martin. And the, the great thing about that performance, and there's many, you were always great, but the thing that I love about it is you literally reinvent, this great beloved song is totally reinvented and takes on a new resonance that, that you know, that because of the show, I should point out, the Prince, uh, uh, Let's Go Crazy, the Grammy Salute to Prince, which is uh, airing, is airing four days to the year, uh, four, four years to the day that we lost Prince. And I think that ha- makes this song have a whole new meaning. And the performance is so beautiful. What, can you tell us a little bit about how, what went so right with it, Susanna? <laughs> well, when you contacted me, um, I said, can we talk? And I really, and you told me that Chris had picked it, had picked Manic Monday. And I was very touched by that because I'm a huge fan of his and I love Coldplay and I admire him so much. And so then you and I talked and I said, you know, I'd really like to get together with him and talk about it. And, and we did, and he had been traveling and we, I went out to his place um, and we sat down and I, and he told me the reason he picked it was because it was the first song as a young, I guess he was only, I think he was born in like the late seventies. So he must've been quite young, less than 10 years old when he heard it, but he somehow knew that even though it was the Bengals version of it, because there was no other version at that time, he knew it was a Prince song. Somebody told him this song was written by Prince. And so he picked the song that had this very special memory for him as a young kid in love with music. It just so happened to be our version of Prince's song. So when we got together, my whole thought was that I don't necessarily want to do, try to duplicate a record. I, I want to, the, 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 the thought that I had an opportunity to sing this song with Chris, um, I just wanted to figure out what could we do to make it as emotional and powerful of an experience as two Prince lovers coming together to make something new. And so I couldn't have gone better in my opinion because I, we sat right next to each other on the piano bench. He started playing it. He never played it the same way twice, ever. And we just, it was like one of those things that I long for as a musician of just being in the total present tense moment with another musician, listening to each other, not stuck with our in-ear monitors and our, you know, all the gear and trying to hear each other, but like close and looking at each other and playing together. And it was just like doing a dance with somebody. He never played it the same way twice. We never sang it the way same way twice and at the venue when we performed it obviously I was very nervous I don't play venues of that size typically or I hadn't in a very very long time and I felt like I was like walking this tightrope it was so delicate and on the heels of Misty Copeland the ballerina who knew Prince well her beautiful beautiful intro in which she talked about how Prince wrote for women a lot and really like to. And then um, it was right at a part of the show. I don't want to give anything away though, am I? You're not giving anything away, no. There, I, I just want, I can't wait for the world to see this because Phil, you saw it, Jimmy, you saw it. It, it, was talk, beautiful. 
it reinforced for me something that working with Ken Ehrlich, you know, who's produced the Grammys and these specials forever, what I've always noticed is the most powerful moments are often the ones that aren't the biggest moment. But it's when you take it back down to the essence of music and just have a pure musical conversation. And that's what it is, is like, I have to say the song just took on a whole new meaning that it, it and I, I don't know if you remember this, I walked up on stage, which I don't do as much as uh, like Ken or someone, but I remember asking Chris to say, your, your vocal was so beautiful. And you, by the way, you look so beautiful in this special. Uh, <laughs> and, then, and then there's Chris who, who dressed casual and is real loose. And yet it has total, you lock in to this sort of magical moment. And it's, as you said, it's, it's not, there's no artifice. It's just pure, really feeling a song. And I really wanted Chris to sing The Time It Goes So Fast because even th thinking of that as it relates to Prince and that he's gone and it happened so, it was such a shock for all of us um, when that happened, when he passed. And I just, the way Chris, even him reinventing the melody and I said, do it twice, sing it twice, I think, because it was so touching to me. I mean, the song took on a whole another meaning in a certain way for me. Um, so hopefully people will enjoy that. And Do you know, it's, it's interesting what you said about you guys just listening to each other instead of monitors, because I heard from Michael Bland, the drummer who played with Prince a lot, that, he, that they didn't use any monitors whatsoever, and he forbid anyone in the band to, and they just had the front of house mix, little fills pointed back at them. So everybody... Really? It was, they were forced to, yeah, they, they didn't even have a monitor engineer. No, no, nothing. It was just the, wow. the, what the crowd was hearing they had in fills. And so if you needed to hear more of yourself, it was, you know, only when it was your time to, to feature, would you be able to do that? You just had to be in, in the fabric of the music um, and not have some you know, custom experience where you're hearing yourself on top of the band. Yeah. Wow. You know, Jimmy, I had a question about when you were saying early on how he was already so talented on multiple instruments. How was he inclined in this time when people weren't recording at home yet and you didn't have one man band things like, you know, Stevie Wonder or McCartney or Todd Rundgren? Like, how, how did he get the the idea that he should, was it just now, was he just compelled to do everything because no one else was going to be able to do it the way he wanted it? I mean, the way he was hands-on with engineering and production and, and uh, you know, there was no, it was like, a, you know, like a French filmmaker, like an auteur where everything comes from one mind, it, you know, not that he couldn't collaborate and didn't have great collaborations, but why do you, how do you think he got this inkling to, do everything be this all-arounder he um well first of all he had opportunities and, and opportunities to me such a key word here because you know he gave us such a great opportunity uh to go out when i say us i mean myself and terry to go out and do what we did but i think the big thing with prince was he had access to a studio there was a guy in minneapolis named chris moon who had a studio it was a, i think it was a 16 track studio and he used to allow Prince to just go in and just create. And I think that was such a key for him to experiment 
Because when you talk about, yes, he knew how to engineer, he knew how to get his sounds, to play his instruments, to get his effects, all those things. But he had access to a studio that he could just literally just go in and just play. And he would do it. He would play like all night. Like, like he literally was always been, I never knew when he slept. He would always be up playing and always doing stuff and call at, you know, two in the morning and let's go do this and, and that type of thing. So I think that was the thing that really shaped the idea of him being able to do it himself. And I think obviously influenced by people like Stevie Wonder, um, people like Todd Rundgren, um, who were making records at that point in time where they were doing everything themselves. So I, I, I think that probably had a lot to do with it. Brad, when you were growing up, like, you know, I know you were, you know, a kid phenomena playing like on the uh, Vir West Virginia version of the Opry, but did Prince still enter your mental consciousness, musical reality at all? Yeah, well, first of all, I was no phenomenon. I was at a, I was good for 13. And my dad used to say, um, you're cute, but when you're... <sighs> When you're 19, you're not going to be cute anymore at this. <laughs> so make, make, sure, make sure at 21 you're good. <laughs> I, I think you're still cute. Thanks. Thanks, David. By the way, where are you, where are you vacationing, David? That looks wonderful. <laughs> I, I think I'm somewhere in Hawaii, but I might switch to, uh, you know, somewhere less glamorous later. Um, you know, uh, here's the thing. It's like I, was, I grew up, I, I was, my first taste of music was Buck Owens, who reminds me of Prince in a weird way, because... Buck was a maverick and did a lot himself and wouldn't play by the rules and also did not have a monitor engineer. Um, you know, they did Buck Owens live at Carnegie Hall. They hadn't really even invented monitors yet. And that thing sounds, it sounds like they auto-tuned it. It's crazy. Um, and it's like, and, and you know, but then I slowly over time, like as I was born in 72, so I was eight when the eighties rolled around and already playing the guitar and going through, you know, being influenced by everything. Like we had, the country station was WWBA, which is legendary country, one of the oldest country stations in America, one of the first two. And then the rock station was Womp FM. And on that, so I was bouncing. So I was already like country for a little while during the day and listening to some rock. And I, you know, I was way into the, Hugh Lewis and the Bangles and Prince and Springsteen and everything else in addition, because that was a survival act as well, so that I didn't get beat up in school. <laughs> and, and, you know, and it was like, cause you know, going to school and, you know, rocking at that time, rocking George Jones, Johnny Cash records, they, you know, nobody thought that was cool at that point, but with Prince, it was like, it, it, it was immediate. Like he, just grabbed you with the song and as a guitar player i had to later on realize what he was doing the song came first it was crazy what he could do and uh you know i i was what was i watching the other day where where they did where it was like a high school oh i know what it was it was it was, it was dave Chappelle's uh mark twain award did you guys yes. see that yes and the band came down the aisle Oh my God! His high yeah. school band. Yes, it was fantastic. It's unbelievable. It was. It was like that was exactly what Prince I would think would have wanted. Would was that his song to live on with a the life of a high school, and Marching. it's like this. 
How many people's songs shine through when a marching band does it? <laughs> no one. I mean, you know, it's like usually when a marching band covers a song. I remember when I went to a West Virginia football game and the marching band would cover Country Roads. And I would like, I took my grandpa to a football, to his first WVU game. And I nudged him. I'm like, there it is. There's Country Roads. And he's like, that ain't Country Roads. <laughs> Um, well, that marching band, how many marching bands can cover Prince? Uh, they were pretty great. No, it would be true. So, yeah, I mean, anybody's song sounds good with that band. But, no, it was like, I, I honestly, for, for me, it was, it was amazing the way the song came first with him. And, er, I mean, every song he, that I, he ever wrote that I ever heard was amazing. And it's like I hear there's this treasure trove of unreleased stuff somewhere that we all know is probably great. He'd probably hate it if it's released, but it's probably insanely better than anything anyone else is doing. And I hope, I don't know if that'll ever see the light of day. Does anybody know? Jimmy would know if anyone would know. Yeah. What do you think? Have you well, heard it I yet? Think, I think some of that stuff will see the light of day. Some of it has seen the light of day. Um, unfortunately, in some cases, it's been kind of misguided, even in the intent of what, the songs were for or who they were for. Mm. Um, when we talked to Prince, uh, probably this was probably five or six. Oh no, it probably was. I know it was longer than that. It was probably six. It was longer than that. It was probably 10 years ago. We had a conversation with Prince and we had our studio and Prince said, I just want to come to your studio and just make a record. And we said, okay, great. And he said, what kind of record would you make? And we said, first of all, we go to the vault. And we grab all that stuff you were making around when we were there, which was the early 80s. He had tons of great songs and great music, but it, was, it wasn't necessarily for him. It was intended for the time. It was intended for Sheila E. It was intended for Vanity Six at the time. And those were the songs we were like, let's go back and grab those songs. And so some of those things have gotten released, but the story on what they are and who they were intended for and how they would have actually been finished, mm -hmm. I think has gotten lost a little bit in the translation. But yeah, that stuff, you will hear a lot of it and he won't be happy about it. Quite <laughs> <honestly>. <laughs> not be happy about it. Just say that all of it was intended for the bangles and send it <laughs> to Zana's There house. you go. Exactly. There you go. Well, and I'm sure some of it was. That's the whole point. He he was always inspired by other people, and he would always write with other people in mind. And had a lot of records. Um, the song "If I Were Your Girlfriend" uh, song was actually he did a record, and I can't remember what it was called now. Oh my god, I just blanked on it. He did a whole album of songs like that with the sped up voice. Oh yeah, yeah. it was a name. It was, like, it was a name of a. Yeah, it was a, it was a name like not was it Camille? Camille, yes, 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 I think it was Camille. Camille. Yeah, he did a whole album of that kind of stuff, and that was the thing. When you talk about how prolific he was, he literally it wasn't even about oh I'm going to write songs for myself. It's like I'm just going to create other entities and other uh, you know ways to get these this music out. Very much like George Clinton back in the day with Parliament and Funkadelic and. Bootsy yeah. and all of these different things. It all came from George's mind, but then it got spread in a million different ways. Well, he created you, and then that created a monster of your whole career, right? He, I mean, the time, how did the time, the timer on the show reunited with Morris Day, sounding amazing, uh, but can you talk about how he, how did he change your life that way? 
Well, he changed my life totally. Like the reason that we're even here today speaking is because of him. Um, there's always, um, there's a, a documentary on, on uh, Netflix that I would recommend to everybody see called The Black Godfather. And it's about Clarence Avon, who was very important in our lives. But the thing was at the beginning of the documentary, the first person that speaks is Bill Withers. And Bill Withers talks about that person that creates the opportunity for you is the most important person that you have. I mean, you still have to go on your own and do it and make it, make it happen. Prince for us was that opportunity. And when he made it out of Minneapolis, it gave us all in Minneapolis inspiration, like, oh, we can do it, we can do it. So when he came back and basically said, he told Morris, put a band together and I'll get you a record deal. Because Morris had written a song called Party Up for him. And Prince said, okay, for writing this song, I'll put a band together. And, but he didn't want our band to be the band, actually. He wanted the band that Morris already had, which was a different band. Um, and, but we were the better band. And I think that was the thing that, that came back to <laughs> drive him crazy, was when he picked us for the band, Morris kind of held his ground and said, no, I want Jimmy and Terry and these guys to be the band. So he put us in the band. And then when we got on tour, and there were nights we'd just kick his ass, just flat out <laughs> that. And I remember one time we came in, uh, after one really spectacular gig that we had, and I don't remember the city, and Morris's jacket that he always wore, the Presley, and we called it the Presley. So Morris wanted a new Presley, and Prince said, no, you got to wear the old one because that's what everybody expects you to wear. So Morris went and got his own Presley made. After the show, Prince walks into the dressing room afterwards, and we're all just kind of, you know, kicking it and stuff. And he goes, hey, uh, he says, Jerome, bring me my, bring me my, my thing. And, so Jerome brings out this garment bag. He zips open the garment bag. And Morris Day says, hey, Prince, I got a new Presley. <laughs> and Prince looks at us and goes, I created a monster and ran out of the dressing room. <laughs> and hilarious. so that was the thing. So he gave us he gave us the opportunity, man. And that was the biggest the biggest thing. But then he taught us the work ethic, man. The work ethic was incredible because he outworked everybody. And so, but he also out-talented everybody. And that was the combination that was unbelievable. And uh, when you talked about, oh, by the way, Phil, I wanted to ask you, that sounded like we were in a special uh, director's cut of uh, Purple Rain. As yeah. a, uh, when Phil has a famous legendary movie night that you're now all, if it ever comes back, if we ever don't have to socially distance, you're all gonna come, we'll screen Purple Rain. Uh, yes, but uh, but Bill, for you, what do you think? I've never been able to explain how there's a million things about Prince I don't think are. How do you explain a guy who I towered over, who my wife, who's five one, towered over, who uh, somehow was sort of you know sort of looked ambiguous racially, sexually, uh, who was from Minneapolis, which he made the coolest place on earth, but was yes, previously just the coldest place on earth. <laughs> Uh, uh, how does that guy not only become like the best thing since the Beatles in some ways or the biggest and then make purple, how does he make purple rain, which, and again, I'm not saying, I'm not going to argue this for the subsequent movies, but he makes like this, this auteurish, he hires a guy who's never done this. How did purple rain work out so well? 
You're asking me, the old Jew? <laughs> yes, exactly. You're, well, you're a creative genius. You you brought the I'll world. Tell you, I'll tell you, and this is something that I'm so happy to be with real musicians who, who understand what he did. But as a guy who can't play a note uh, and is just a fan, and yet I toil in my little world of writing comedy and my little food show and everything. But when I work with uh, great chefs or great comedy writers, there's one thing we're all looking for, whether you're a musician or, or, or any other art form. It's one word, it's undeniable. And he was undeniable. You just can't, when we're writing, when if you're writing a song, you know when it's undeniable, right? There's certain ones, you know, and certain jokes that we may have, well, we'll see how it works. We'll see, or for chef, well, yeah, I think this dish has the right ingredients and I think it tastes pretty good. We'll see what the people say. And then there's the one that's undeniable. That's print. Okay. I've never been so sad at an artist's passing that, as I was with him. It's still, there's a void in my heart. And I can't even say that I listen to him every day, but I knew that he was undeniable. There was one of a kind. And I, I was in love with his uh, music writing, music playing, music singing, his dancing we're not even talking about. The dancing? He was a yeah, showstopper. He, he could do a, he could do that guitar solo you're talking about that's insane and uh, split at the yeah. same time. <laughs> well, it's interesting, David, you started talking about his, his physicality. I was wondering, Jimmy, about like his energy, these all-nighters in the studio and then these stories about he'd play at an arena and then turn up and do a secret gig after like where did he ever like you know crash like how did that energy sustain itself was he like manic and sped up or was it just like a marathon of of energy because these stories about him playing the after gig you know there's so many of them and he's this little guy and you know you hear about Mick Jagger's like fitness and and health routine like what how did how did he sustain how did Prince sustain the like raw energy to, to he was hours you know what I I really don't know but I know that um back in our rehearsal days what would happen is he'd come and rehearse our band the time he'd rehearse us for five or six hours and he would he would just you know relentlessly not with I mean, he'd be like, you know, make this louder, make this softer, change the key of this, do that. I mean, it was very intense. Then he'd leave and go do his, the revolution. He'd go and, and then work them for another six hours. <laughs> then he'd go to the studio, or which was even before Paisley Park in his house or whatever. And the next day, he would walk into our rehearsal, the time rehearsal, with a cassette. And he'd pop it in and he'd say, this is what I did last night. And it would be 1999. Like right. it would, I mean, I'll never forget when he, he popped 1999 in and it came in. everything, And we were like going, what the heck? And it went off. We were, Okay, let's hit seven, 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 ninety-three, eleven. Like he'd be right straight into like our rehearsal. Like, yeah. how was the energy he had? Twenty hours wow. a day. Yeah, the the day I met him. Well, I met him. I went to cover the Love Sexy tour opening in Paris, and he did the big arena, you know, uh, uh, a show, 
And then he had an after party and it was very Prince-like. And it was, I don't know where there's a place like this, but it was in the middle of like a park in Paris on water. So it felt like you were on an island. And I was brought over with Kurt Loder, who was covering this for MTV. The two of us were brought over. Kurt stepped on his foot, which as awkward as Prince could be in conversation, it didn't help that Kurt stepped on his foot. But still, at the end of the conversation, he goes, very brief conversation. He was a man of few words in, in many ways. He said, uh, do you want to see me play later? And it was three in the morning at this point, And wow. later was 4.30 at a club's off the uh, club off the Champs-Élysées. I found the set list the other day. He went on and did like a great show again with Mavis Staples, who's on our Grammy special. She's and, I, amazing. And, and by the way, Jimmy knows I, I fought for her. Uh, I just said, we have to have Mavis because he personally once told me how much he loved Mavis and I thought she needs to be there. Oh no, she's great in this show. And Sheila E. was the band whose musical directors are Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis, and Sheila E. for this show. And you guys did an amazing job. You were, Susanna, you were saying the other day when we spoke just what you were impressed with the musical direction because there's a high standard to live up to. Yeah, I mean, um, but I was just thinking about the thing about Prince just constantly going and being being in the act of making music in some way and it had to just be like almost like a drug-like effect when you're playing music all that other noise about your life and your problems just goes away because you're in that moment you know you're just playing right but I remember this one night you just reminded me when he invited the bangles to go to Sunset Sound where he was kind of encamped recording like like t- as Jimmy was saying and um you know just always going from this thing to that to recording and Peggy Leonard used to say you could always tell Prince was doing his vocals sometimes by himself because you could just hear his his boots clacking on the the wood floor he would be uh engineering himself you know and just in there at three in the morning recording his vocals but um so we went into the, his studio and we just didn't know what to expect, but in the end, he just wanted to play Bangles songs. And the crazy thing was, and it was like the biggest compliment ever, he knew all of them. So we just went to Sunset Sound at like one in the morning, and I don't remember what time it ended. First, we went to his house that he was renting, and that was really interesting, but then we all went over to Sunset Sound. I, did, I look back on it, and I can't even believe, it's like, was that a dream? No, it actually happened. We just played music with Prince, and it, he, we were playing our songs, and he knew them, and that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to play Bengals songs. Do you, oh, remember, no. do you remember after you cut Manic Monday, did he come around while you were working oh, on it? No, he didn't come around when we were working on it. He came to um, when we were rehearsing to go on tour, which was just right after we finished the record. And all of a sudden, and this would be very typical of Prince, like when he just be backstage suddenly in the show. No warning, just, he just materialized, you know, <laughs> like in this very um, surprising, but, you know, kind of incredible way. It was, there was like this kind of euphoric feeling. Oh my God, Prince is in the, in the building, you know? And, um, but he just showed up and we were like panicked because no one in the band played keyboards. It was a guitar-based band. And so we didn't know how to do the iconic Baroque riff of the song. And um, he just sort of listened to it. And he had this kind of mischievous look on his face. And then he was like, yeah. I mean, because we didn't use his tracks, I guess was the point. He had given us 
him singing in the same key, but his recording, his tracks. And we just kind of started over again and bangle fight it, you know, from the ground up and just recorded our own drums and bass and, you know, built our own track. So we had a sudden anxiety that he would be a little bit bombed or something that we didn't use his tracks, but he was into it. The mischievous quality you just mentioned, I realized that's actually, I think of, that's why I think of him and the Beatles in a certain way. Like, like they're a great artist, Stevie Wonder, you know, there's, I can think of other great artists, but to me, the Beatles and Prince both had a wink, a mischievous wink that makes it feel very modern. He's gone four years and you look at things he said, and, and I think back to the conversations I had with him. I mean, I had one where I tried to pitch him a joke which was a, I'll never forget that. <laughs> How did that go? Uh, I, it's, it's like when I pitched you, uh, I saw Todd today. Oh uh, yeah, I bet. It's not, you, it's you, a bat. It you didn't always go well. That. I've seen it. But, you're, not a, you're not a bat in a thousand when it comes yeah. to that. <laughs> but uh, uh, I did write the last, it's in the Grammy show. There's this moment where he uh, said that albums still matter like Black Lives that we wrote together. And I always think, I have a collaboration with not as good as Manic Monday, not as good as the Time Records, but it's, yeah. it's something. Uh, but I did have the experience. I think he, oh, maybe because he was like at five foot whatever and 98 pounds or whatever, he had to, to win, which he did. He always wanted to win. He had, like, like in that while my guitar gently weeps moment, he had to do surprise attacks. And like, he, I think he would always, I, I had the same experience. You know, he called Ken Ehrlich and I over to meet to discuss the Beyonce Grammy moment that ended up opening the Grammys and being a big moment in his career. That, the Super Bowl, and While My Guitar Gently Weeps are big moments in my mind. Yeah. Uh, but he, he literally called us over last minute and, and, and we sat with him, had a meeting where you have, you know, he was fascinating to speak with. He was so, he was funny, he was sharp. Uh, but then he did his surprise attack, which was he goes, you guys want a little private concert? And it was like, he literally had two seats brought over in the rehearsal hall, and he and the band did a show for two of us. Wow. And I, <laughs> the show at that little club in Paris, those will always be the greatest shows I ever saw. Because I, yeah, I of course. Uh, Maya Rudolph, who does a beautiful job hosting the show, said, as a live performer, it's not even close. It's like, I still think, I've never seen anyone do what he did, you know? And like, to your point, uh, uh, undeniable phil my wife is not like a music person not particularly and i remember seeing at the forum his show uh not the forum i'm sorry at staples when he came and yes playing in the round and she said this is clearly the greatest thing i've ever seen and yes and she didn't know probably half the songs you know and this that part where he just sits with just him and the guitar doing versions of his hit just uh on the acoustic guitar pretty great well, that's actually a good question for my two, the two guitarists, Taylor and Brad. Uh, one thing I was interested when I was- And I, Susanna, three guitars. And Susanna, I'm sorry. Uh, I was just trying to get, to get to the guys, appeal to them at some level. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, but when, uh, oh, oh, when I was studying his life again and just wallowing in the music while we were working on this special, I realized that when he was, he, he almost was a little bored with the guitar at the end. Like he was so brilliant at it. Uh, he was, you know, he had the piano tour. Uh, I think he had sort of fallen in love with the piano, which again, he could have fallen in love with any instrument because he was one of those guys like Stevie Wonder or McCartney who just could excel in any instrument. But what is it, yeah. does, does it amaze you? Because it's sort of like, uh, 
that it amazes you that a, a guitarist, you know, as good as Prince, could have certain way fallen out of love with guitar a little. I'll, what amazes me is that somebody who is that good of a player, you know, Susanna mentioned the the Baroque melody, Manic Money, that like major seventh figure, and then Jimmy's mentioning five six hour rehearsals that he could be like a benevolent guy. If you're that good and you can do everything that well yourself. I mean, you guys know, Brad, you're a solo artist, you're a band leader. If somebody's hitting clams in rehearsal, it, it, it's irritating. It's going to piss you off. It's hard to like be a nice guy when somebody's not on your, getting it done on that level. And since nobody can get it done on his level, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just curious about how he conducted himself collaboratively in, 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 in touring and in rehearsals you know like he's he's that good um how how does somebody get a gig to be in that band and what do you have to do to get fired from that band like how did he run his his show because maybe you were fired so why don't you uh, speak to that i heard i heard a rumor tell tell me if this is true and then i gotta hop off here for another thing but i the the rumor i heard was that he would find band members for clams like when they would make a clam they'd get a, like, he'd find them monetarily. Is that true? I doubt it, but. I heard that about Ray Charles. James Brown did that. Yeah, well, maybe that's where he got it, if he did it. I don't know, do you know if he did it, Jimmy? If he, I'm sorry, you broke up on my end. If he did what? Find band members for making mistakes, like clams. Like, they would get, like, a monetary fine. Like, I'm taking this much out of your check this week. (laughs) He used (laughs) to say that, but I don't know whether he ever did that. Yeah, it's. That. I, I hope he did. I like, I like thinking he did that. It's cool. <laughs> yeah. But you're, all, but you're also hearing that he went into the Bengals rehearsal and they were doing it not exactly the way he had laid it down and he was cool with it. So, I mean, maybe right. it's, I don't know. How do, how do you be that good and also be a, a nice guy who can work with other people? If I was that good, I'd be a dick to everyone. I, 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 think he, I think he could be difficult. That was my impression. He was. Oh, I think so. Probably. Yeah, I didn't know him, but I bet he was. I, I think there were nicer guys. There were guys who were probably more generous. I, I think, the, like in Jimmy's case, and Brad, if you have to go, you go. But like Jimmy, like he, you had the good fortune to have other opportunities that he was, I guess, somewhat threatened by or jealous of, or he pushed you out, like knowing you could fly. Uh, but he was tough on band members as I, he, they didn't stick. There weren't that many people who stuck around for the whole journey. Yeah, that's true. Um, and it's interesting cause there's a lot of people that are kind of bitter, bitter about that. You know, we were never bitter. Like even when we got fired, we always just felt like Terry always called it freed that he didn't fire us. He freed us. <laughs> to do what we need to do. So, I'm going to use that. I'm going to use that from now on. That, that's good. That's good to know. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, but no, he he was he was difficult. But you know, the the one thing I will say is that what he expected from you was never above what he expected for himself. So the fact that he worked so hard and you saw the time and the effort and the joy that he got out of it. If someone wasn't getting that same thing out of it or putting that amount of work into it, then I think that really pissed him off. Oh, yeah. And that was the one thing I'll say that we we loved it. We loved the work. We loved the rehearsals. We didn't complain. We thought it was great. And it showed us exactly what we needed to do to be 
successful on our own. The lessons are there. He's a, he was a great teacher. The lessons were there. It was just whether you were absorb, absorbing them or not. We were. We took everything that he did. And for us, it was either we're going to do it just like that. Or sometimes the lesson would be, uh, if we get it, we're not going to do it like that. But still, it, it was very informative. Yeah. Did you ever well, I, uh, see him work himself to exhaustion? Do you think he could have could have uh, taken better care of himself? Was he fragile because of because of the uh, how hard he worked? Later on in life, I know that um, he had because he wore you know high heel shoes all the time, and um, his I know he had hip problems and he had some other problems like that. And Morse Day um, got a hip replacement a while back, which. Morris had changed his life. He said, and he told Prince, he said, man, you got to do this. He said, it'll, it'll change your life. And I don't know whether Prince ever did or not, but I know that he was, there was a point where he was walking around with a cane and we always thought it was just cause it was just cause he was doing the pimp move or whatever. And he's going to have the cane. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I think it sometimes he actually maybe needed it. And a lot of time toward the end where he was doing the piano and the microphone stuff and not doing all the acrobatics and stuff that he had done before, that maybe at that point his health was, um, physical health had, had deteriorated to a point. But back when we were with him during the 80s period, no, there was never any hint of exhaustion at any point in time. I don't know that I'd ever seen him like yawn. <laughs> um, wow. So, and I just wanted to ask you, you were in the audience for this show, and yeah. I wanted to know what, what was that like for you? Hey, 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 Dan, before you do, I got to bow out because I got another thing I got to get on. I've loved this, though, you guys. Thank you for having me. Love seeing you, Brad. Oh, by the you way, do. and I, I, all of you, Brad has a new hit called No Here <laughs> that is the, it's going to, something has to save the world, and it is saving at least. <laughs> Well, so check it out. Let me, I'll sign off with this. His reach was unbelievable. This hillbilly is is a good example of uh, the various strange uh, ways that other formats were touched by him, and and he was amazing. So I'm honored to have talked about him with you guys. Thank and you I'll for. You, uh, he actually wrote a song for Kenny Rogers that I only discovered in later years. That is great. Did, did Kenny cut it? Yes, Kenny cut it. Wow. Well, there. They're up there singing it together now. Yep, exactly. And Prince right. is telling them he didn't do it right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll see you guys later. God bless. Thank Good you, luck. Brad. Bye, Brad. Yeah. Um, so I was asking Phil about the show because I know that uh, for Jimmy and I, it was like, I think we both were like, oh boy, how do we make this something he would have hated as the least possible amount? I loved every second. I loved every second. And I, I bet... I bet you guys there uh, watching the other artists and then watching the, the clips of Prince in between, it was, it was a beautiful, it was a beautiful tribute, I thought. And those packages with a voiceover by Jim. Yes. Uh, uh, Taylor, for you as a guitarist, did he have an influence on you or you, you're, you're young enough, that was he yeah. a formative influence? Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you exactly what it was. It was the, the context that he put around his guitar playing because he was kind of coming from a Hendrix place. But like, like uh, Brad said, um, the guitar had its, had its moment. And then and it was always about the song though. And his production was so ahead of its time and the writing was so good. And then the guitar came in and had its moment and it was dazzling. Um, 
but instead of taking the Hendrix thing and um, copying um, the whole shebang in terms of that production and that era, it wasn't like Hendrix in a retro way. It was like taking Hendrix's kind of stylings, but then he's interested in synthesizers and Lynn drum machine and, and new effects. So he was kind of paying homage to, to his hero, but putting a whole new uh, thing around it, a whole new context around it. And that influenced me because sometimes all guitar players or musicians, you get stuck in a rut, you have your go-to patterns. And, and sometimes you think like, well, that's the same fucking Joe Walsh lick I've been playing since high school, but maybe instead, maybe that's, maybe that's all I'm going to do is play that thing. But if I play it over, um, something mixing natural sounds with synthetic sounds um mixing old technology and new technology it gave him a canvas to to do that kind of guitar playing where it seemed anything but dated it wasn't wasn't like um he was just sort of doing hendrix over again he was doing it for for his era well it's not even in guitar wise but i will say i just remember when i heard little red corvette for the first time yeah and i thought i've never heard synthesizers sound so sexy and human like there was something like he I, I think he was a man who loved sex that comes across loud and clear in the music but there was a sensuality to the way he touched instruments and you yeah. feel it in a way like there's a lot of British synth rock that like it couldn't be less sexy but yeah. his music it was sensual and human like he found the, he found the 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 uh, uh, the heart in the machine somehow. He found. How about Kiss? The first time you heard Kiss. Oh, yeah. that was a right. wild. Track. I, by the way, I'll say best falsetto ever in a song. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. You even forget. You talk about everything. We haven't even really spoken much about him as a singer. <laughs> he, was yeah. like, he was. Yeah. Uh, was there anything he couldn't do, Jimmy? You would know. The thing that Terry always used to tease him about, because he used to tease us about being producers. He'd always laugh that, you know, you guys are producers, and he'd laugh. <laughs> and Terry would always say to him, Prince, when you produce something that doesn't sound like you, then you're a producer. <laughs> and Prince never had a comeback for that, because his touch on everything, you know that it's him if he's in the studio and if he's actually doing it. So I don't know. Um, the thing, but the thing, what you guys were talking about earlier, though, that I wanted to just um, think about was um, his vocals. He, on his first album, For You, which he played all the instruments, did all the vocals, engineered it. He pretty much did everything himself. Um, but that starts off as an acapella, almost choir-ish thing that he's like the voices. And it's like, I don't know, 20 or voices of him. That's the most amazing thing. And I was ar not arguing, but having a discussion with Questlove about it. And I said, if you were ranking debut albums by artists, I said the For You album by Prince, the first one that most people don't know, because most people came in, you know, around Purple Rain or 1999 or maybe Controversy or maybe Dirty Mind. But if that first album is so revelatory and what I said to him was, Think about that album. If you listen to the album, there is a moment on the album or moments on the album where you're going to go, man, who's playing guitar on that? Oh, it's Prince. Oh, man, who's playing that bass? That bass is funky. Oh, that's Prince. 
oh man, who's doing that background vocal? Oh, that's Prince. It's like literally every sonic thing you hear is him. And you realize- and how old is he doing drummer? that? Huh? He played every he instrument. Uh, huh? On, on the first album. How old was he? Like, he was like 19 was or 20. 18, I think. I think he was 18. That's crazy. Yeah. But it's an amazing listen. So go back. If, if you don't know that and you haven't heard the album, go back and listen in that context um, of it. Because there's acoustic guitar songs. There's rock songs. There's it's like the whole gamut is right there. Like all the seeds of what were to come are all on that very first album. Uh, and, to me, it's one of the best debut albums ever, anybody's ever done. And Susanna, you mentioned Peggy Leonard before, but one thing that blew my mind when I was sort of doing, going back and listening to everything was realizing, and I tried to put it into Misty's comments, but like, I don't can't think of it. Like here in 2020, we're talking about the lack of women producers and engineers. Still, it's a, still a problem. Prince worked with women in every way. Like, he obviously, there's the sexuality of Prince, but he also was a man who loved women artistically, creatively, and who gave women, is there any other male artist who ever had decades of working in a studio alone creatively with women? None that I know. I mean, I just keep going back and listening to what everybody's saying. And, and Jimmy, you had so much time with Prince and work so well the entire go in the other room. But um, just that there, the the pro, the being in process with music to me, I listen to "Let's Go Crazy" kind of as a morning hymn, <laughs> you know, kind of a just it just gets my head straight. It's like we're gathered here to get through this thing called life, and then that song. I mean, I kind of just keep going back to the thought that. Prince, it was his religion. It was his, it was the great, it was the thing that, you know, he was like a kid in a candy store when he was doing that album and layering on all those parts and just being absolutely in the moment of the process of like, ooh, I'm going to now throw on an acoustic guitar. Ooh, let me put on the, I'm hearing a, I'm hearing a, a tambourine, tr you know, track. I'm going to throw that on. Like, you know, I mean, for me, music is, listening to music, playing music. I mean, music's a big part of my life. It is a religious experience. I mean, it is the closest thing that I have to like religion. It is the morning prayer. It's the midday prayer. It's the, you know, every song, it's like, it's like it's the soundtrack of my life, you know, all the music that I love. And I just have to go, I just have to think, you know, almost more than anyone I've ever encountered actually in my life, Prince, of course, all of us musicians know what that feels like, but Prince really, he really lived his life. And though it was cut very short, um, he, he really, <laughs> that was his, that was his, you know, his, I don't know, his, not, I don't want to say coping mechanism. It was just being in process with his art. Was it was his oxygen. Loved the best. Sorry. Susanna, yeah. it was his oxygen. Yes. It was the way that we breathe and don't even think about it. That's the way he was with music. It wasn't so much a lot of times that he was even thinking about it. It just was just so in him, just running through him at all points and times. And that's what you experienced. And then when you got a chance to be around him, that's what you're experiencing. That's why, that's why when we talk about him, it's, it's hard to even articulate into words because you haven't really been around anybody like that. I know. It's so loves. It's just like breathing. It's just... 
So no, uh, it's funny when you, when you said the thing about scripture. Like it is, I like I can love like the way a religious Jew would love the Talmud, or or someone else would love the Old Testament or the New Testament. I listen to Prince lately. Like this morning, on I went on my pandemic walk and I put on and I just listen to a different Prince record all the time, and I listen to. Uh, Diamonds and Pearls, which is later than the sort of a lot of the classic period people talk about. It's a little bit later, but there's a song strolling and I'm walking on Mulholland Drive and this song is killing me. Like, and the thing is, it's, it's like you can find beauty in a verse of, you know, uh, of a religious scripture. You, everywhere you go with his catalog, you can find gems that you, and learn something like musically. It really made me think, oh boy, I'm sure this this is Princess's father's son, like the jazziness that was in him. Like there were all these directions that he and he went to got he got to explore a lot of them, but like you realize he could have done anything with his musical talent. He could have written, you know, I saw his ballet, which I think Misty Copeland was in, that he, you know, he could have gone and it's a shame that we don't have more, but it's it's so I'm so thankful for what we do have, and I'm thankful, you know, that we got to celebrate uh you know, his salute him on this Grammy special. I think we've run, I don't want to take more, too much of your, more of your time, but for, for, for Susanna and for Jimmy, the two of you who knew him better than uh, any of us, just is there a, one last story you want to share of what you love about the guy? Any, any, any memory from your time with him that, that, that stays with you before we uh, let you go? Well, well, Jimmy knew him much better than I did, but um, well, the moments of just standing on stage and smiling at each other <laughs> and, you know, witnessing his supernatural magic, that was one thing. But also, I'm so grateful to the gift, the gift that he gave us of Manic Monday. I mean, he didn't even credit himself on it. The song was credited to Christopher. I, I just, you know, I'm... I'm just, uh, you know, choked up thinking about what that has meant in my life, honestly, you know, and it was just so beautiful to be able to do that show with all of you, you know, with uh, Jimmy, with you and David and, and everyone who put it together. And, you know, I, after he was gone, I just kept thinking how Oh, so many times, and I had this actual conversation with Tom Petty, how many times, you know, you had that instinct to just reach out, out of the clear blue sky and just find a way to contact him. How many days I would be on my, my walks, and I would be listening to Prince, of course, and I would think, oh, man, we were kids, you know, in the, in the 80s. We were 20-somethings. You know, I need to talk to him, I need, and I didn't. And, and I was actually on Tom's show, and we talked about it. Um, and he, he was talking about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame night and how he told me every detail of that night. And uh, we were both feeling the same way. So I'm sorry I didn't, uh, you know, act on that impulse. But the night we shared, all of us who were part of that show, man, that's, that would, that was really profound for me personally as a human being and as a musician and as a prince lover. Susanna, can I ask you, uh, did that happening and you not now being able to reach out to him, do you now reach out to people when you get that feeling like, oh, I oh, should yes. let you do now, I right? Do. 
I do. I do too. So in, even in his passing, he's taught you something. And I feel the same way. I feel the same way. I do that all the time. I'll hit somebody randomly or seek somebody out who I've always wanted to get to know and just never did. And now I'll look on Instagram or I'll try to find them and DM them or something. And I'll do that. And they're so shocked. And it's just like, yeah, but when Prince passed, that changed my outlook of things. It's like, I better let these people know how I feel about them. 100%. I mean, it's become a, it's become a ritual, you know, whether it's just a, a, a finding them as you, as you just mentioned on, on Instagram or going through and sending someone just a heart emoji or something on a text. And it's just, it just brightens up my day and it feels so good. So that really stuck with me as yeah. well. The, Another the, life lesson. Yeah. I mean, my, my story, my Prince story is always the same. And, and so maybe people have heard it before, but it's one that speaks to the work ethic thing. And that was, when we were doing 777-9311 and we were in rehearsals for that song, um, Prince came to watch the rehearsal, of course. So we do the song and we're thinking it sounds great. And when we stop, Prince goes, Jimmy Jam, what are you playing with your left hand? And I was like, nothing, Prince. I'm just doing a, like a little bass line. You know, there's not, that's the only part I need to do. He said, I want you to double the keyboard. Said Monty's doing our other keyboard player, double his part. And I said, well, it's not like that on the record, Prince. He says, it's got to be better than the record. Okay. Oh. So, so now I'm playing my part, right? And I'm thinking, okay, cool. So we go through it. Song ends. He goes, Jimmy Jam, what note are you singing on the course? <laughs> I said, I'm not singing on the course, Prince. It's like a three-part harmony. And, you know, it's Morris and Jesse and Terry, and they got it and whatever. Find a note. Oh. But it's like not that on the record, Prince. He says, it's got to be better than the record. Okay. <laughs> So now I'm doing my part. So now I'm seven, 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 ninety-three, eleven, and I'm playing both hands, right? We get done. He goes, Jimmy Jam, why aren't you doing the choreography? I said, Prince, I'm standing behind a keyboard. What what choreography? What am I supposed to do? He said, It's easy, you should be able to do it. So now I'm trying to do it. It was simple choreography. Right? It was a dance called the four corners from back in the day. Right? So now I'm trying to do it. And I'm so frustrated because I can't, if I hit the dance and I miss the note, if I hit, if I miss the note, then I miss the, the singing. Crazy. I totally drives me crazy. We go home after five hours of this. Next day we walk into rehearsal. Prince walks in and he goes, okay, let's hear 777-9311. And I just go, no. We start the song and about, Two minutes into the song, I realize that I'm doing everything that he asked me to do. I'm hitting both notes. I'm hitting my song, my, my notes singing. I'm playing both hands. I'm hitting the choreography. So then I'm like, by the time we ran it a couple of times, now I'm taking my hanky out my pocket and I'm doing my, thing. <laughs> my glasses. I'm taking my hat. And it was the most important lesson, but it was two things for me. It was one that he taught me about work ethic, about, no, you can do this but also his belief in me. Like I hated the way he told me to do it, but he saw something in me that I could do that I wasn't getting the most out of myself. And so he made me better. And uh, I'll never forget that. I mean, that's, that to me has kind of, that ruled my life really from everything after that is thinking, no, you can do this, you know? And that's part of what made his mind so great because he applied that same rule to himself. And that was to me, part of his greatness. Think about the ripples of that kind of lesson because then Jimmy and Terry go off and become the, you know, the greatest production team of all time 
and it, it just ripples. Like he taught us all and uh, he's still teaching us all. You, we learned being around the music, just doing the special. It's, it's the education can continue. Yep. The special is so good. Thanks to all of you guys. And it's, it shouldn't just be one. You could do that special every year. Yeah. I mean, his, his legacy deserves it. I agree. Well, I'm sure there'll be more things done and, and, and more things need to be done, you know, I but I, I, I think, sorry, sorry, keep going. No, no, no. I was just, I was just, I was just going to say, I'm very proud of it, of the special. I think Prince would be very proud. And I think musically it's so right on because it's such a diverse group of artists. And, um, can you mention some, or I, can I mention some just so people know everyone yeah, from you got, literally have everyone from, uh, well, Foo Fighters, you know, rocking it really, really hard. Killing it. So the beautiful, intimate performance by Chris and Susanna to Juana's uh, representing a different whole musical world to Gary Clark Jr. and her just, you know, kicking it off with this amazing version of Let's Go Crazy that I was worried, how can anyone else do Let's Go Crazy? The time, you know, uh, uh, the revolution with Mavis. I mean, there's... The revolution is amazing, yeah. Beck doing, uh, yep. who I think he kind of channels Prince uh, and does Raspberry Beret. I, I, I hope, you, yeah. I, I, and what about Earth, Wind, and Fire? Oh. Adore. Yes. Because, like, literally, Prince grew up loving Earth, Wind, and Fire. And to hear Philip Bailey hit that song, you know that Prince, and somewhere in his mind, as he's writing Adore, he's thinking Earth, Wind, and Fire. Like, he's thinking that voice. And Absolutely. to hear them do it was amazing. I thought Philip was unbelievable the vocal yes. is uh, and that song which is like again i love that there's a lot of the classic hits there's also a few like that's a deeper r&b radio favorite like yes. sort of quiet storm and i think there are people who maybe don't know it that are going to discover it there's gary clark jr does the cross the cross yes which is just another deep deep yes moment. so good and I, when I watched the special, because, uh, you know, Jimmy and I spent a lot of time in the edit bay, like one thing I love is now, especially with what's going on in the world, that Maya Rudolph didn't want to host in a jokey way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, thank God she didn't, because I love that this is a show that people can see now with a real audience, with people dancing together and being together. Yes. Not two nights, at, you know, after the Grammys, uh, it, 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 you'll, you'll feel that sort of sense of, the audience that Prince uh, could hit, but you, you also just sort of, yeah, it, yeah, I think she brought a sort of seriousness about what Prince brought to our lives that feels right for now. I, I think, it, I think it's beautiful. Yeah. No, me too. I, I can't stop thinking about the story about hearing his, his, his boots on the floor and the vocal tracks, because it means two things it means one, this late night guy who doesn't have time to go formally walk into the live room and have an engineer. He's, he's, manic about getting it done and two he's still dressed up alone at 4 a.m in the studio at all times <laughs> he had style he'd um, tell us that in the time he'd tell us we he says you guys can't go out in like sweatsuits and jeans or whatever you guys never can wear that you got to go out looking like yourselves like it's got to be 100 percent all the time if he was he on a that. zoom call he would have been dressed up <laughs> absolutely right absolutely right and that's why I, i'm not prince hey suzanne i got one last question for you sorry um, 
so when you guys were at Sunset Sound, did he ever play basketball out there at the little hoop? They had that one yeah, little hoop. Yeah, I mean, he we we had heard the lore about what a great basketball player he was. Yep. And so, um, yeah, because we, we weren't recording there, unfortunately, at the same time, but everyone would always talk about how great he was at basketball. So we knew that. And um, it was it was – very cool. There was that little there was that little basketball hoop they had at Sunset Sound. Yeah. And he would get everybody into playing games of horse, right? <laughs> but he had all kinds of angles off the tree limb, off the roof, <laughs> and into the basket. Like he had the whole thing figured out. Do you know the Chappelle sketch? Nobody could beat him. Have you seen the Dave Chappelle sketch? Yeah. 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 Amazing. Yeah. But it's true. But it's it's pretty much true. That is pretty much it. And he would come and it would be he'd be in high heels, it wouldn't matter but he could school you on the basketball court. Yeah. So in addition to being one of the greatest artists in history, also maybe the greatest five foot basketball player in, uh, <laughs> yep. in Minneapolis history. Yep. Well, thank Susanna, you. Where, oh, I'm sorry. I was just, my, one more question. Say, where is Manic Monday in the, in the set and ha, does it move around or has it had the same spot forever? Uh, it's been, it's been sort of the third song of the set, you know, so we, yeah, for a long time. But I like moving things around. I, I'm in a, a mode right now where I like trying something in a different key and reinventing it. So, you know, actually back to the show, that being able yeah. to do Manic Monday with Chris that way um, was really, really special. But yeah, it usually is the third song. Good. By the way, and we, we don't care what critics think, but I've talked to a couple of music critics today, uh, earlier today about the Prince special. And everyone is, that is the moment that everybody is talking about, is you and Chris. And I'm glad actually you said, because I wasn't sure, I couldn't remember how it came, how you guys came together to do it. But um, I know the last gentleman I talked to, that was, for him, that was the moment. And he said, and I agree with him, you guys need to just put that out as a, as a record. Oh, well, I, I would love to. You know? That version is just so incredible. Oh, thank I, you so much. It, yeah. it, it went beyond what, I mean, I definitely wanted to cook something up with Chris that felt really special, but, but, but then, and then, you know, that's good to know because oh, so, I, I, so I was so emotional as I, as I got in the car and drove home that night. And I remember thinking, and I think I texted Chris, uh, I just had this really good feeling that if Prince had heard that, he, he would have liked it. Like yeah. knowing what I know about Prince and my times with him, my, my experiences with him, hanging out with him, I just thought, and that made me feel so good. But you saying that makes me feel extra, extra good. Thank you so much for that. Well, that's, thank you all for being part of this. Uh, we really, I really appreciate it. Uh, I, this is a, a one-off uh, sort of uh, event for a one-off artist. You know, there's only one of Prince, so I appreciate you all just uh, interrupting your uh, your lockdowns for this. Thank you for having us, David. Thanks for the Thank you. Lots of love. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to get through this thing called life. Yeah, the elevator tires are bridge for hell.